Welcome to Thriving with Stripes. I'm Dr. Patty Stott, along with Tom Stott, here to present a positive environment for those with Ehlers-Danlos Syndromes. With a grounded background in research, we're here to provide education, support, and empowerment to understand how to thrive as a zebra. Our information we provide through our podcast is general and should not be applied as treatment until discussing with a medical practitioner. Localized outside the Denver metro area, we specialize in general consultations and health and wellness related in office and teleappointments for those with EDS and related diagnoses. We hope you enjoy the show. Y'all are in luck. Welcome back. Today we talk about the autonomic nervous system, the ANS. Dr. Patty, hello. Good morning. Good morning. I'm I'm full of excitement. Dr. Patty might explode because this topic is something that comes up every single time we record a podcast. Am I wrong? You are not wrong. It sneaks its way in um, with all my conversations that I have with people too, even like potentially on the street, <laughs> we end up talking about the autonomic nervous system. To make an analogy, the autonomic nervous system is to our podcasts like children are sneaking out, out into the living room after bedtime. Yeah. They, they just they just creep. They, they, they creep end out. up out there somehow. I don't know how. <laughs> so the autonomic nervous system, we have a poster of it in our practice up on the wall. It's something that you talk about it. The, yeah, it's, it's, it's the it's, only it's poster. An, yeah, yeah, it's the only poster. <laughs> it's the only poster. So it's such an important piece of how we uh, function as a human. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like, it, it regulates everything. It's and the that's, cornerstone. That's why I wanted to have a general podcast. We've talked about dysautonomia, but I feel like we need to take a step back and talk about the autonomic nervous system in general, and then kind of go over some of those treatment strategies um, that we might have brushed on in our last talk with Dr. Schofield, but really um, elaborate on some different ways to approach the autonomic system because there are a few different ways to approach it. Um, And it's usually a combination that works. So just to kind of review what's out there. uh, And of course, I'm not going to have all of the answers, but to expand everybody's mind, because I don't think that we realize how much is out there that we could be using to work on it. Yeah. And just talking about nerves and the nervous system in general is a topic that seems like, oh, I'm not going to get this. I'm not going to understand that. It's too over my head. But it's something that's uh, it's it just saying it's everywhere and it's effective, not just in the central nervous system, in the brain and spinal cord, but in all the peripheral nerves. We can give you really solid action plans to follow to have a positive effect on it, regardless of, of where you start. Absolutely. I mean, when I was in college, um, I'd like to say a few years ago, but uh, it was a while back. uh, And I was in neuroscience. We have to take neuroscience, neuroanatomy in physical therapy school. And I remember being in that class and it was lab one day and just this this resonating thought of, I will never use this. I just have to pass this class, um, which I did. And now I am like, I'm up to my eyeballs in neuroscience and loving it because of the type of neuroscience that I branched into. It's a different type of neuroscience, Um, you know, really looking at specifically the autonomic system and how it coordinates with our brain and how it coordinates with our body. And um, there's, gosh, there's so many ways that you can work on it. There's so many things that it can do in a good and bad way to our bodies. So uh, it's just funny because it was one of those things, like many things in my life that I was thoroughly convinced I was not going to do. And here I am loving neuroscience. Just completely jumping into the deep end of the neuroscience pool. 
oh, it was like the abyss. <laughs> it was, I am still swimming my way out of it and it's going to take many years to do so. Um, but the, the amount of information and we're, we haven't even brushed the surface of what's probably going to be discovered in the next couple decades or hundreds of years, who knows? Um, but it's really just skimming the surface right now. And there's so much information out there that people just don't have access to. And I'm talking medical practitioners too. Uh, it's just, it's such a niche that's out there that you really have to know what to study and where. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of this, our interest in this system started when we started to branch out or, or broaden our scope in uh, the practice of physical therapy into looking into functional medicine and this this bigger overall picture of health. At least for me, that's where I could say my interest, you know, blossomed, if you will, because I started looking at some of the patients that would come into the office that were very nervous or that were very, you just see the tension throughout their body, not just physically, but mentally, you could, you could hear it in the way that they spoke. And that's where I felt like a lot of just my simple conversations back and forth did way more for the person mm -hmm. than any physical thing I did. Yeah. Education, education, is, right. It's key. And it's not just anxiety. Gosh, we, there are so many things that the autonomic system controls that we'll talk about today. Um, so, so many different approaches that you can take, but it's, um, it's not just in that presentation when we're talking about physical therapy is if I see that somebody is super inflamed in multiple areas, then there are other things to look at as well. But the autonomic system is one of them because a dysfunctioning autonomic system creates inflammation, which not a lot of people know. So if you, and I, I have professionals ask me, I have patients ask me, um, I am stumped. I am having all of these issues with, you name it. Um, it's a lot of it's the GI system. Those patients that are down to only being able to eat rice and chicken and they can't tolerate anything else, then whether it's a professional asking me or the patient themselves, well, have you looked at the autonomic system because that innervates the GI system? I mean, it's it's such a simple step back to work on something else to make such big drastic changes in the body. It's always a place that I look no matter who walks into my office, EDS or not. So to make an orthopedic example, um, since you just brought the GI one up, it's that person that gets spontaneous bilateral elbow flares or spontaneous bilateral Achilles tendinopathy. Yeah. Who knows if they have a histamine sensitivity, if they have an MCAS flare up, or if it's dysautonomia in general and you don't know. And, you know, we know MCAS and dysautonomia tend to go hand in hand and affect each other. So there are so many different avenues to go down and look into rather than just orthopedics. And it's, it's a big area that we're missing, especially in physical therapy. And um, I think everybody's heart is in the right place. I just don't uh -huh. think that the, ha, I just don't think that the education has caught up yet to really understanding the global picture of somebody um, that you want to heal orthopedically. You might have to step out of your comfort zone and learn a little bit more about this neuroscience or mast cell activation syndrome, autoimmune disorders, and things like that to be able to fully address the patient in front of you. Fully address the patient. All right. That is certainly what we want to do. And I think a good place to help start is just with some anatomy. So with the autonomic nervous system, we have a couple different components between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Do you want to go over those briefly and kind of touch on the role, like what each of them does? Yeah, I mean, they're... they're it's checks and balances. So the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, you can kind of look at it as yin and yang. Um, 
the sympathetic is our flight and fight response, which is where a lot of people are stuck in. And the parasympathetic is our calming type of side. And that is super simplified. But I I don't want to get too much into detail of each type of systems because they do operate a little bit differently in each person. um, And there's so many other makeups genetically to the person. Um, So approaching them is a little bit different. But your sympathetic, you know, one way to remember is you have sympathy for watching a dog get hit by a car and that'll flare up your sympathetic system. So that's that flight or fight response, that increased heart rate, increased blood pressure. Um, you know, you have all of these reactions and the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So the whole autonomic ner- nervous system together controls blood pressure, heart rate, your breathing rate, body temperature. So yes, you can have regulation issues with body temperature. Somebody just asked me the other day. Um, and when you stimulate the autonomic system, like with a workout, which is what she was asking, yes, you can have fluctuations in temperature because the body cannot figure out how to regulate itself. The autonomic system is not working. Um, Digestion issues, metabolism issues, uh, issues with the balance of water and electrolytes. Uh, And we'll talk about this later, but that's why I am not the biggest fan of doctors just recommending drink lots of water and take in lots of salt. It's much more complicated than that because of the balance that we need. We're talking about all electrolytes, not just sodium. Um, You know, you can have uh, issues with just production of body fluids, even urine, problems, urination, problems with defecation, um, issues with your sexual response, which we talked a little bit with um, Mala Madrone about that a little while ago about sexual integration. And then the autonomic system regulates our internal organs. So you name it as to what can happen in the internal organs. I mean, there's those regulate things on their own. So if there's dysregulation from up above in the autonomic system, then your organs can be malfunctioning or not functioning optimally as well. So pretty much everything. Yeah. And this is stepping way out into the, into the rabbit hole or stepping a foot down, but I see a lot of this and the list that you named it with is, you know, of like the functions with all encompassing. And especially when you mentioned the organs, the first thing that comes to mind is cancer to me. Mm -hmm. And I look at you know, what's, what's bigger, what's the cause, what's bigger, what's bigger than just, you know, a family history, genetics, or right. just, a, you know, a bad habit, alcoholism, and, and all these things, I look at, like, what's the bigger umbrella, and it kind of points towards this ANS. Yeah. And you not saying that cancer is right. caused by the ANS, but, like, but there's such a broader picture than just cancer, just autoimmune disorder, just, you know, just, just these things like poor health in general. Yeah. And you, you really, if you have somebody that's presenting with all of these symptoms as a healthcare professional, you have to keep taking steps back and saying, if, where are we going to start? If there's so many issues, well, look at the autonomic system and look how much it regulates. Why not start there? Because we just have this talk about self-care and the fact that most people are having issues with self-regulation, which is the autonomic system and all this stress and flight and fight response. So take a step back and start here, start here and work on this and see if you see any changes. It's such a huge component to our everyday life. So the same way that an athlete trains their body to fulfill whatever endeavor they want to step out with, you can work and train your system to handle and regulate the ups and downs of life? Yes. Yeah, you absolutely can. There are ways to do it. Um, Different for everybody, might change day to day, but there are definitely ways that you can do that. I'm thinking of hashtags for this show in general. It's like hashtag ANS, hashtag different for everybody, (laughs) hashtag that's 
depends on the individual just thinks it end up being such a large part of each of our talk because everybody's so unique. And I think that's cool. Yeah. And um, especially unique with the symptoms too. Dysautonomia, just like MCAS um, and EDS is one of those where there's a lot of weird things and air quote weird or, um, you know, from your doctor, I don't know, or that's interesting, or, um, you know, I don't have an answer for you. So those are kind of the autonomic system (laughs) issues as well. So we see a lot of overlap between a lot of different conditions. And, you know, just like the mast cell activation syndrome book that's out there, um, Occam's Razor, it's similar for the autonomic system as well, that, you know, it's usually the simplest of explanations to describe a problem as a whole. And the same for dysautonomia, that it could be dysautonomia that's dysregulating your whole system. And I am not saying that's the only thing to work on, right. but it's something that if you do not work on, and if you have a chronic illness, then you're probably going to hit a roadblock at some point. Um, you know, and talking about symptoms, there's such a wide variety Um Neuropathies are com- are pretty common. They're finding that small fiber neuropathy is associated with dysautonomia. Um, a lot of my patients and I have that. Uh, neural inflammation, hypersensitivity in general, this can wax and wane. I see this a lot. Shooting nerve pains or super sensitive nerves or paresthesias where the, the body part goes numb. Um, that can wax and wane for people. And that's usually a sign that, you know, it's either we can get into MCAS, we're not going to today, but it could be that and neural inflammation there. The neural inflammation could be from dysautonomia as well. Uh, dizziness, lightheadedness, uh, when you're rising to stand, your abnormal heart rate response. And depending on what type of dysautonomia, this could really mean anything because it's just dysregulation. So I've had some people that are bradycardic, which is a very slow heart rate, which is an abnormal response to movement and exercise. Majority though, have this elevated heart rate, um, this flight or fight type of response where it keeps triggering the, the elevated heart rate, sweating abnormalities, which I laughed and I told you about this morning, um, connection that I, I hadn't made until recently, but I was one of those kiddos that like out of nowhere just was a sweater and just sitting in, in class. And I ended up going to the doctor and they gave me a prescription roll on deodorant basically to shut down <laughs> my sweat glands. Um, but back then we just didn't know, but now I know like, all right, that's a, that's a red flag that we need to look at your autonomic system. If you're having issues regulating your sweating, um, that's common complaint though, or something that I ask people and they just haven't thought of it before. I can't even look back personally. And like, I couldn't wear, up until you know a, a number of years, just a number of years ago, like be barefoot a whole lot because I was just yeah. constantly sweating. And knowing now, like about the ANS and how much it was not just a sweat issue with me, it was an issue with me. It was caused by something different, right? You know, it's like eye opening. Like, oh, I wish I could reach back to middle school, <laughs> high school me, cl- Mister Clammy. Yeah, and it's just it's a it's a flag. It's something that you should know about. Um, but you definitely had dysautonomia. If you look back with, um, the vasovagal reactions where you would have, you know, what we call drop attacks or like just pass out with certain exposure. Um, and you don't have EDS. So it's important to know that dysautonomia is, um, you know, it doesn't discriminate. Right. And risky for me to say it's pretty common. Um, But it it presents differently in everybody and um, the treatment strategy and the intensity of treatment is very different for everybody. And I want people to understand that there are people that have consistent dysautonomia and some that just comes and goes. And it's, it's very different. It's a wide variety of dysautonomia. I I think that's a very safe thing to say. I don't think risky at all. 
but just in terms of we're we're so polar with our it's either diagnosis or it's not like somebody's either flat on their butt and they have dysautonomia and they can't regulate or they're not and that's that's bull you yeah. know there's there there's no reason why somebody can't be dysautonomic or in that spec like we talked about the spectrum before right there's this dysautonomic spectrum right um, and and you've worked with some athletes some runners endurance athletes that you know they there's no history of eds no suspected anything you've worked with somebody that had a foot neuroma and you traced it back to dysautonomia because again any neural issues could be a sign that there's some sort of dysregulation and you've had success in working with these patients with dysautonomia and those treatments. So uh, again, taking a big step back and really understanding the the full picture of somebody, and making sure that you check all those boxes yeah, and that you're working I think on it's everything. something you know everybody should be aware of and be trying to to nurture and and, and progress. And, yeah, everybody should know about the autonomic yeah. system. I'm on a quest. Um, uh, other issues we know. Gosh, any gastrointestinal problems could be autonomic dysfunction um, because the GI system is innervated, um, is controlled by the autonomic system. And sometimes that's where I start with a lot of people, even if we're having MCAS flare-ups. Well, if you don't have a regulated autonomic system, how is your system going to react to things that we put in it? So you really, again, it's you have to approach this from all sides um, urinary issues um, we brought up before, but incompetence, so uh, not being able to to hold urine in, um, incompetence, uh, incomplete emptying, so you're not able to get all the urine out and you're ending up um, going to the bathroom frequently, uh, and then difficulty starting urination. So these are these are all potentially um, dysautonomia symptoms. And we think like Kegels and pelvic floor, and there's some <laughs> physical spots parts to all this, but also the, to be able to send the signal down, all right, you know, X, Y, Z function. Right, right. And, you know, sexual dysfunction can be common with dysautonomia as well. Um, and that's why it's, again, you know, you have to approach it, especially if we're talking about sexual dysfunction, psychologically, physically, and also autonomically. Um, you really have to approach it from all angles, make sure that you're not missing anything, you know, pretty much for anything that you work on the autonomic system, um, because there is a component of the the psychological, the you know, the brain and our our state of perception and then our physical autonomic system of how it responds to things. And then the autonomic system itself. Um, so many different ways that you can work on it. Uh, and then, uh, organ involvement. I mean, we don't have enough time to talk about that today, but the autonomic system innervates our organs. That's a lot to consider. That's a lot to consider, especially if somebody is having abnormal blood tests also can be MCAS. Um, but abnormal blood tests, things that just don't come, back right in blood tests, like yeah. especially a lot of liver panels and things weird. like that. Yeah. Um, all those air quote weird things that happen, but there are so many things that can be dysregulated in the organs too. slow organs, you know, um, they're not just producing like they should, um, just kind of sluggish throughout the organ system. Yeah. So, uh, there are physical strategies for the organs. I do visceral manipulation, there are not many trained in it. So be sure that you actually look for somebody who is trained in it. Um, specifically, there's only two different uh, schools out there, I believe right now that do it. So it's not a massage, it's actual movement, but that is a physical way to approach it. But then again, step back and you have to address the autonomic system as well. Absolutely. So with the ANS and dysregulation of it, um, you know, there are really 
two ways uh, to, to approach the topic. Um, for anybody, they deal with either an acute flare-up or, or dysregulation or something chronic. Um, certainly, the people dealing with chronic dysautonomia can have these temporary flare-ups where it mm-hmm. gets worse. Um, but these are kind of two different things to talk about because um, I think for each individual, you got to have a baseline for how to kind of deal with things. But then you also need to have like a little booster pack. Like if I get an acute flare, if something spikes, what am I going to do for this to help calm things down? And that's, we call that the algorithm, right? Right. And that's like the master's program, like understanding all you need for your baseline and then also understanding how to manipulate on um, certain flare-ups and certain days. That takes a long time to understand, but that is what we're eventually going for. And that's a, that's a learning process for everybody, like yourself included. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you mentioned uh, thinking about sweating from back, I mean, these are things that, that we're still exploring and figuring out on the daily. Right. So we're learning just as much as you are, and we're trying to help you learn for those of you listening. Right. And an overall view of dysautonomia, one thing that is important, you know, I brought up the fact that you have athletes that present with dysautonomia and there is a misconception. We talked about this briefly with Dr. Schofield, that there's a misconception that you can't be fit and athletic and have dysautonomia. And there are many athletes out there with dysautonomia. You can actually have an aerobic base, but still have issues controlling your autonomic system if you're prone to having um, a sensitive autonomic system. So it's, it's important to understand that even if you get to the point where you are aerobically fit, you are consistently working out, you're still probably going to have to regulate your autonomic system and work with it if you have an abnormal or, um, you know, sensitive autonomic system compared to somebody who doesn't have to work on it. So it's something that you're always going to have to pay attention to. If you have this chronic dysautonomia, if you, you know, there is no genetic link right now, who knows down the road if they find one or or in this EDS spectrum that they haven't discovered for hypermobile EDS, um, whatever it might be. But for those people more sensitive, it's a lifelong understanding of your system. That's why the communication with your system, like you say, understanding baseline and then manipulating treatment yourself and really understanding how to treat you and self-awareness is so important down the road. And one of the most common threads that I see in I mean, just this one population sticks out to me like foremost is um, postpartum females. So mm. the the women out there that can have children that have had children that before and after. Now, for a myriad of reasons, not to exclude just where they're at in a mental space. You know, they're still in the body of pre baby. Yeah. You know, if especially you mentioned like the athlete, the ath- athletic mama out there that it still remembers this, but it's now in this mm-hmm. and it's dealing with all these hormones and stressors and changes. I mean, that's just, just, just like a dysautonomic like flag waving around all over and, the place. Yeah. And that's just physical. That's just the, the physicality of going through childbearing and childbirth. And we're not even talking about the psychological component of grief for your old life, which does happen. And I think that we should embrace for some of those people out there. Some people are very excited to explore motherhood. And I'm not saying that, you know, those who explore motherhood and are excited about it um, can't experience grief. 
we, there's so many different combinations that you can have, but it's, it's okay to grieve for your old life and still be happy and excited to be a mom. And that that's just such a duality that we don't talk about embracing, you know, it's, it's all about this new road and we can't think about the past. And I think that we forget some of ourself if we do that, but there's, there's grief for your old self. Um, and then there is also a lot of stress that it's, that's involved in this new life too, especially if it's your first. And I'm not saying adding on to that isn't stressful, yeah. but it's such a huge shift after having your first one in your whole lifestyle. And again, there's less self-care time. Um, you always try to put baby first or child first. Uh, so there's a huge shift and we have to recognize these psychological changes that influence the autonomic system as well. Yeah. And that's, you know, we should have a topic, a talk just about that, because I think that's so huge, you know, from our personal story of, you know, I used to find you in a Taekwondo studio for like three to four hours a day, (laughs) right? Like I remember going out and riding my bike for six to eight hours, you know, a weekend day. And that Mm -hmm. was just normal. And, you know, I don't know if we've ever personally had a whole lot of conversations around grieving for those times. I mean, I, I love where we're at now, mm-hmm. but it's still okay. I guess you've yeah. given the, the individual, giving yourself permission to be like, you know what? I do miss that. That was really cool. But yeah. like, I miss that. And that's okay. You shouldn't feel guilty for missing that. Right. And I, our oldest is going to be nine in a few months. And honestly, it was even our talk with Mala Madrone on sexual integration and talking about grieving for our old life. And I realized I never had. And I feel like that's actually part of my journey. And very, very slowly, I've started to allow myself to grieve for the loss of being able to train six to seven days a week and to teach classes and to remember all of my forms and to be so good and also to cross train with running and strength training and being at the gym until 10 o'clock at night. That was so cool. That is because you could sleep in. (laughs) And then we would sleep in some weekends. We would just watch movies and sleep all day. And that was a really cool life. That is not my life. And I have to grieve for it because it was awesome. Yeah, that was cool. It was awesome. And then, you know, my nervous system, my autonomic system tanked after having kids. I will be honest, it tanked and I didn't, I didn't recognize what was going on in the moment. So the fact that I didn't recognize it, um, really I'm digging myself out of a hole still. And I think that this grieving is actually opening a new door for me to progress out of it. You know, we were such rookies, <laughs> literally rookies at it. Okay. So testing, you, you mentioned, you know, they're not being the strong genetic link or, or, or one that we know of at least, at least yet, but how do we go about testing for autonomic dysfunction? Yeah. I mean, there are a few different ways. Um, i I listen and, you know, I have a mixed opinion of what my patients think about not labeling. And I I usually don't say that it's postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome or that it's a neural mediated hypotension or, um, and I, I don't like to label that because I have had patients have diagnoses taken away. And I feel like that's more disempowering than giving a diagnosis. And I say that because I've had so many patients, we talk about the fluctuation in dysautonomic symptoms every day. I've had patients that go in for their tilt table test and it comes back negative. And the next day their symptoms are like at 200%. So it's, I've had a lot of patients that have um, negatives on their testing and are glaringly have autonomic dysfunction. So I'm not the 
the most keen on diagnosing because I don't want to take it away. And I don't want anybody else to tell them that they don't have it. So, and I also don't get specific because I've had patients that have symptoms of postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. And then you see them, you know, a couple of weeks down the, the road and they have hypotension now, which like orthostatic hypotension, which is actually not associated with POTS. So I, I don't like to label things fluctuate. And I think this global term of dysautonomia, um, I very much like that does not mean that I don't work specifically on POTS syndromes or like the neural mediated type of symptoms. Um, I absolutely do. I'm just saying that I don't like to put a label on it because I don't want labels to be taken away. It's, it's, it's heart-wrenching to finally be validated and then a couple months down the road have somebody take that away. Yeah, that's that's tough too because from an overall like health and wellness perspective, the diagnosis doesn't mean anything, but we know that it actually means everything. Yes. You know, because this is an individual that's that's felt crazy, you know, their entire lives and um, known something's been off mm-hmm. and finally has something to to kind of blame and then to work around. If you know who you're fighting, you'll then be able to figure out how to fight it. Yeah. And that's why I like to say dysautonomia. Let's just call it dysautonomia for now and that you're showing signs of, of POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. Um, and I don't negate diagnoses by any means. I just... I feel awful when I have MDs out there that take diagnoses away. And that happens a lot with POTS and MCAS, mast cell activation syndrome. Um, But testing wise, we talked about the tilt table. Um, So that's a test where they slowly bring you from lying down to to a standing up position on a tilt table and they measure your heart rate response to it. Um, It's hard to find tilt tables. And I have many patients that have had negative tests and are glaringly, like I said, have dysautonomia. so tilt table is one of them. A lot of times what we see in the office is what they call the supine to stand test, where we have a patient lie down for at least a few minutes, kind of regulate the heart rate there, take a measurement um, at that baseline. And then we have them stand up for five minutes and we take the measurements in that standing position. Um, if we have an increase by over 30 beats per minute from lying down to standing after that five minutes for an adult, and I believe it's 40 for children, then we um, suspect the diagnosis of postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. Um, but again, there's so many factors that go into that. Did they have coffee before they came in? Um, or did they get any sleep the night before? Did they have an awesome night's rest and their autonomic system is better? So I, I like so you get to false positives and false negatives. In, you get in both of those. Yeah. And that's something that, again, it's something to, to work on and to track. And I got this really cool new watch where I can, you know, actually look at my, my EKG reading and read it and see what that looks like and track it day to day and see how um, my heart rate is on a daily basis, rather than looking at it at a once in an appointment. And that's where you're going to get your diagnosis from. Um, so I, le- I like to look at it over time. Yeah. You know, I'd like the patients to track them for me. I want the pa- a lot of people have heart rate monitors. Um, this is how you do the test. Go home and once a day for the next week, um, take it twice a day or even three times a day, morning, afternoon, and night, and start tracking it and see if you have a trend of what looks like postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. If you don't, and it's still screaming dysautonomia, then we should, all of these holistic things that we're going to talk about, you can safely try. Some of them does need to be guided by a medical practitioner, or at least let them know what you're doing. Um, but there are healthy ways to try to manage it. Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's a, a, a realm in coaching athletes that I, uh, I do a, 
head towards in terms of gauging recovery is so important with with all humans, not just if you consider yourself an athlete, but being able to recover from the previous day, whether it's just a day or the day plus a workout <clears throat> is checking uh, resting heart rate right at the beginning of the day yeah. when you wake up before you've been going, before you have a chance to perhaps caffeinate or start to be involved with work or family, kiddos, what have you. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are other tests. There are sweat tests um, that they do to see how your sweat response is doing. There's the SSR, the sympathetic skin response, where they look at the, they put electrodes on and see what the conductivity is like from your, to your, um, your skin nerve endings. Um, the cues are the quantitative pseudomotor axon reflex test. Um, and that's another sweating test that kind of looks at how the autonomic system is controlling your sweating response. So there are a couple different tests out there. Um, you know, there, are they reliable? I, I don't, I don't know there. It's nice to be validated. It's definitely nice to be validated. Do you need to get one of these tests done to know that you have dysautonomia? I don't personally think so. Do most patients want to go get more tests done? Um, actually that's a good question. Some do because This is going to sound awful, but I was one of them. Give me a positive test because I want somebody to see I'm not crazy. You know, I want it written on paper that there's something wrong with me. And it sounds crazy. Why would you want anything wrong with you? But it's because you just want to be validated. You want somebody to say, I hear you. I see something is going on. Um, But then we also need the next step. And what do we do? And I'm not seeing that a lot from practitioners um, outside of medication, potentially. Uh, And a brief little, you know, you have to stay active and drink salt or drink water and take in a lot of salt. And that's kind of the only recommendations I'm hearing from my patients, from even the specialists. And there are so many things that you can do. And we're going to talk about. Yeah, let's break right into those now, because. Um, it should be known that you can definitely work on. It's more than those three things. Um, we found a ton of, of, of really good ways to approach this mm-hmm. um, that I think have benefited benefited a lot of people. Yeah. And I was, I would rattle off all my recommendations in the office and um, I just, I felt like I was just missing something that there is something else. Um, it just, for those who have worked with me, I do look for the most passive treatment because especially when we're starting, because it's exhausting. So if I can give something that um, doesn't require a lot of mental or physical effort, that's where I'm going to start. And I felt like all of these things for the autonomic system, I mean, there were, some of them were very easy to adopt, but it just felt like, especially for um, when we're talking about the mind and resetting the mind, I just felt like there should be something easier. And we've explored and we found some things that are working great for some people, uh, which we'll talk about. CES. CES. About yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about CES in a little bit. Um, but what I refer to it as now, and I just wrote a blog post on this, is uh, there's three different ways I consider to approach the ANS. And it's top down, bottom up, and meeting in the middle. And I don't think you can really address the ANS without finding a little bit of something everywhere to work on, Um, especially combining the top down and the bottom up. And for some people, those techniques work. This meeting in the middle is a little bit different, which we'll talk about, like, how do you work on, you know, the system regulation from the brain and from the rest of the body? And it's, it can be done. There's some apps out there, which are neat. 
what I usually recommended um, for a lot of people was, you know, the standard compression socks or compression garments. Um, some people do like the arms and the abdominal binders, uh, hydration with specific sports mixes. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've ever recommended water and salt. What I do usually tell people is that sea salt is better than table salt. Um, there's usually more minerals in it. And then you really need to maintain a balance. It's about this balance of retaining water and um, electrolytes in the body. And the only way that we can really get that balance is through a combination of electrolytes, which is why I recommend these, you know, professional athlete sports mixes that are out there that are higher in sodium, especially if we're first starting on the system is we start with higher sodium content. And then we can play with these. Um, when you have dysautonomia, you look at these little 200 milligram of sodium packets, which um, gosh, it's just a drop in the lake. You know, it's, <laughs> that would barely do anything for some of these patients that are just starting out. So understanding that there's mixes out there that have a higher content um, but something like that, you definitely have to talk to your, um, your medical practitioner about because there is this stigma on sodium that you shouldn't be having too much sodium in your diet. But for those with dysautonomia, you're not processing it like everybody else. So sometimes it's okay. Gosh, I had a patient tell me that her doctor told her 10,000 milligrams per day of sodium, which to me is a little bit extreme. Um, but there are some systems that that's, that's what they need to regulate. Um, the, I think the average recommendation now is between three and 5,000 milligrams of sodium per day. I'm not recommending that anybody goes out and take that. Um, it's a conversation to have with your doctor, but these, if you think about that, if it's 3000 to 5,000 milligrams a day for being able to make a dent in dysautonomia, and a lot of these packets have 200 milligrams of sodium in it, are we really making a difference in these, even in these electrolyte mixes? So we have our brands that we like, um, which I'm not going to, you know, endorse a product right now, um, especially because I don't want anybody hopping out there and jumping on something with a high sodium content, but there are some products Without out there. First, oh, yeah. you need to talk with a professional about that and how to go about initiating that hydration dosing, dosing yeah. because we have dosing plans that we use with our patients. Um, other things, uh, horizontal breaks throughout the day. We preach that a lot. Elevating the head of the bed to help with acclimation so that you're not sleeping horizontal for a few hours and then, you know, jumping up bolt upright and your system has to accommodate for that. So elevating the head of the bed just helps the system acclimate overnight a little bit. Meditation, mindfulness, um, music therapy, frequency therapy. There are programs for auditory processing, which helps the autonomic system. And then um, there is heart rate variability training, which we're going to talk about, and cranial electrostimulation, which we'll talk about too, which um, I just, I've learned to, to love those. I didn't have to learn to love them. I tried them and I love them. Right. Yeah. And I tried them. I'm a pretty skeptical trier of new things. You know, you're usually my buffer for, for while I might be your social buffer in a in a room full of people, you're my <laughs> treatment buffer. Most yeah. of the amazing things I've found that have helped my ANS from Reiki to CES um, to hydration have all come from you. So thank you for that. Yeah. And Reiki was one that I didn't bring up. Energy techniques, cranial sacral therapy, things like that. So, you know, I talked about top down, bottom up, meeting in the middle. So what do I mean by all of that? Um, top down is where we work on the brain to affect the body. So we change our mindset and our mental processing, which changes the way that our 
body starts functioning. So it's our brain's effect on the autonomic nervous system. So that's through like mindfulness and meditation, um, sometimes music therapy, frequency therapy, and the auditory processing helps with that. So that's really like um, changing from the brain all the way down because the ANS communicates with the, the brain and vice versa. So we need to affect all components of how this, this little circle of life works for the ANS. Um, so those are the top-down approaches. And I do think everybody needs to find something that works for them in changing their mindset so that they can have influence over their autonomic system. And then if you look at the bottom-up approach, that's working on the body to affect how the autonomic system in the brain is communicating with the, the feedback that it's getting from the body. So the bottom up, you're thinking, um, these are the compression socks, the hydration. We're just, we're changing the physicality of the body to influence how our autonomic system is responding. Um, so other things, I kind of fit the cranial electrostimulation. It's really close to the brain, but I still consider it a bottom up approach because it's sending that electrical feedback to influence to periphery. Yeah. yeah. So from the outside in. So I still consider that a bottom up approach. Um, although, you know, I'd welcome any information from people on arguing for the fact that it's a top down approach. I think it's kind of one of those middle approaches, but, um, but I look at it as a, a bottom up approach. And then meeting in the middle where you're working the brain and the body together. So you're working the brain and the autonomic system and the breath and everything um, is coming to light in heart rate variability training, um, which now that I've gotten into it, I'm talking to some of my favorite practitioners and they're like, oh, I did that last month. So we're kind of all on the same wavelength and starting to explore these new options. And with the heart rate variability, it it really measures how the parasympathetic and the sympathetic systems in the ANS are working together. So it's how is the, the ANS being balanced? And it looks at the, rather than looking at the overall heart rate, it looks at um, the length of the distance between each one of the heart rates. So the timing between. So rather than looking at this global picture of you know 90 beats per minute, is my average, it looks actually, are we consistently having the same amount of time between heartbeats? Um, and then it looks at something called coherence too. Um, but overall, it basically shows you how your body is negotiating sympathetic, parasympathetic. And the reason why I say it meets in the middle is because there are the apps now that are associated with heart rate variability training where you have you can watch your heart rate variability and it gives you activities to do while it's monitoring your heart rate to influence your own heart rate. So you're working on your mind connection to change your heart rate while watching your heart rate at the same time. So some psychology around some physiology. Yes. Yeah. Meeting in the middle. So, um, so that's one way to, to kind of approach it too. So I do think everybody needs a little bit of all of this mixed yeah. in a blend different times to approach each one with different people. Um, but there, there are so many things to work on. There are so many things, so many different approaches. And if you have somebody trained in the autonomic system that can help you out, it's a fun puzzle to figure out maybe more so for the practitioner. Um, but I love working on this stuff. It's just, it's so much fun to figure out what did work, what didn't work. It's not all going to work. It's about feedback. You know, you tried this for three or four weeks, give some feedback. Let's manipulate this, change that, try this. No, and that's, that's great. I mean, that's great advice and 
kind of informational nuggets because, you know, for the athletes, for the active people out there, this is going to ring a lot of bells and check a lot of boxes because one thing you look at in training for something is not just your performance, but it's really about your ability to recover. You know, if, if, if I give you an interval workout to do, I I know your performance is going to improve. Your times are going to improve, but, but what's driving that is your ability to recover between those efforts. That's why interval workouts work so well because they restrict you. If it's 10 by one minute on one minute rest, that one minute ain't getting any longer as the intervals get harder and you get tired. So being able to see that recovery is kind of what you're alluding to here and being able to see the progress. Yes. People like to see progress. And that's why I like these apps that are out there now, like this heart rate variability training that I'm using. I, I am one that I need to see what I'm working on. It's, it's absolutely validating. And then the other thing that it works on with this heart rate variability is that it does look at like recognizing emotions. Like if you're, if you're having this sympathetic reaction in your heart rate, some of the training is to recognize, well, what kind of emotions are you having right now? Because emotions really drive our physiology. It, um, it works with the ANS and the hormonal system. It absolutely influences both of those. So in finding replacement emotions through some of these strategies, that mindfulness mindset, things like that, we can affect how our ANS, our autonomic nervous system and our hormonal system are working. And that's hard for some people to grasp, but it does because our when we have stress and anxiety, we feel it and it starts stimulating our organs to release certain hormones. Um, so yes, emotions do drive our bodily function. So if you can work on the emotions, if you can work on the heart rate and the response that we have to the autonomic system, then you can start to regulate all of that. And just like you're saying that, you know, it's the recovery time. We should have sympathetic and parasympathetic reactions. We should have them. But is the body having reactions that are appropriate? And that's what we need to come back to, steady baseline or the ability for somebody with dysautonomia to have an incident in life and learn how to self-regulate and bring themselves out of that, what would have at one point led to another chronic cycle of dysautonomia. How do they pull back out of that and how do they control that? That's amazing. And I think very eloquently stated. Um, So to start this whole process. Um, and act, I mean, we have a, there's a lot in this podcast. There's a lot of content. And as you mentioned, uh, we don't think anybody should just be writing all this down and trying all these things. I, I would say you got to find somebody to help you walk down. You need a sage. You got to have somebody to walk you down this path yeah. is to find somebody that specializes in the treatment of dysautonomia. And um, I might be stepping on toes, but somebody that knows a holistic treatment as well, because when you take, you know, medications, it's going to lower your heart rate, but it's a physiological change. It does nothing to the autonomic system. It's just influencing it. But if you can influence it, that helps train it where it's actually, you know, an intervention that you're giving it rather than just taking a medication that automatically changes your heart rate. If you could learn to train train it yourself, it is like a little exercise. And exercise over time with consistency will build back that that better regulation in the system, whereas the medication will not. And gives you the control. The medication will work while you're on it, 
Once you're off of it, it does not work for you anymore. Please keep that in mind. You have to have these holistic changes in your life. You have to have somebody that can coach you through this as to what specific changes you need to make. A dis-autonomic coach. A dis-autonomic coach. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Awesome. So this has been a chat on all things ANS. I'm sure it's going to pop back up in every podcast as it has. This is certainly is an all-encompassing chat in, in ANS. We could talk There's for days. There's a lot more to go. Yeah. There's a lot more of that 1,500-page book to get through. Ugh. So we'll be coming back more in the future. Dr. Patty, do you want any close out with anything else so you feel pretty good? Um, I'm just going to leave it with that last um, – tidbit that I mentioned that emotions drive our physiology by way of the autonomic nervous system and the hormonal system. So um, do not discount the emotions that you are having, that they play a big role in your overall health. And I just, I think that mental health plays such a, a big role in our physiology and learning to work with our own emotions, accepting, grieving, just working with everything and understanding all emotions are okay, but how do we work with them or replace them with better, better thoughts, better emotions, um, and find somebody out there that can help you with this. That's, you know, maybe somebody's trained in heart rate variability where you are, or if you have any questions about specifics, you can also reach out to us. You know, um, if you have questions about creating electrical, electrical stimulation, um, I honestly don't know anybody else that does this holistic dysautonomic um, teaching, this education, this this, coaching, it's just incorporated into my sessions. So if there are other, are other practitioners out there, please contact me. I'd love to know who they are, but finding this holistic approach so that you can learn to self-regulate rather than treat with medication. Because again, you come off of that and your symptoms are still going to be there until you learn to regulate internally. Um, Please find somebody that can help you. Awesome. Appreciate that. Thank you for taking the time to tune into Thriving with Stripes. Follow us on this journey by clicking subscribe on the Apple iTunes store, Google Play Music, or wherever you find your podcasts. As a reminder, we see patients in office and via teleappointment for those out of area. If you have questions or would like to reach out, our email is info at elevationwellness.co. We are also on Facebook as Elevation Wellness and Instagram under the handle Elevation underscore Wellness underscore CO. Until next time, zebras.